Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do, remember your health. Welcome to the Editor's Monthly Podcast of AJPH. This is Alfredo Morabia, I'm the Editor-in-Chief, and we are July 7th, 2017. In this issue of AJPH, we discussed the decision last spring by the new administration to remove questions about sexual orientation from a survey submitted to the beneficiaries of the Older American Act, more commonly known for its services such as Meals on Wheels, its transportation and financial benefits for elderly people. The Administration for Community Living, ACL, explained that the eraser of the question was motivated by the small sample size, but also invited comments. AJPH has taken the opportunity to prepare a dossier reviewing the origin of the initiative, its purpose, whether a small sample size could justify the eraser of the question, and whether there could be alternative explanation to the decision by the ACL. While the eight papers were getting published, the ACL announced that it had reintroduced the question. We believe this file will remain timely as long as the decision is not put into practice. We will discuss first with Kathy Greenlee the history of the sexual orientation question in the ACL survey. Then with Randy Sell, we'll discuss some methodological issues associated with sampling LGBT people. We'll call then Gary Gates and review the ongoing demographic metamorphosis of the U.S. LGBT community. Then, from Britain, we'll talk with Joanna Semlian, and we will review with her the British solution to the relatively small sample size of the LGBT community. Finally, with Laura Durso, we will discuss the political meaning of the decision to raise and then to reinstate the question about sexual orientation. I'm now calling Kathy Greenlee, who under the Obama administration was Assistant Secretary for Aging. She was also the Administrator of the Administration on Community Living at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hello, Kathy. Hello. Hello. Nice talking to you. It's nice to meet you. Yes, absolutely. Tell me, how did this idea of adding these questions uh, emerge? Well, at the time I was serving as the Assistant Secretary for Aging, I was also co-chair of an initiative at the Department of Health and Human Services called the LGBT Issues Coordinating Committee. And it was through that committee that the entire department and every aspect of the department had taken a look at how to be more responsive to the needs of LGBT Americans. And so that initiative was comprehensive. A component of the department approach was to look at data collection. So my decision to add these questions to the Older Americans Act participant survey was really part of a larger strategy to make sure that we included older Americans' issues, issues for seniors, uh, as the department looked comprehensively 
at how to serve LGBT Americans. So what were the steps that you took to implement it? Because it was new. Uh, how did you choose the question? What was the, the process? Yeah. Okay, in the department, there's, and it's a huge department, there's a branch of the secretary's office called the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation. Their acronym is ASPE, pronounce it ASPE. ASPE was really the central collection point for the department on how to determine which questions to use for both sexual orientation and gender identity. They were the researchers. They could uh, pull together the state of the science and advise various parts of the department how best to implement questions. Uh, there's a data council that's a part of ASPE that kind of looks more comprehensively at questions, and they even developed a subcommittee to specifically focus on the sexual orientation, gender identity questions. So as the work was proceeding with the entire effort at the department, uh, I then returned to my own agency and looked for an opportunity to start to implement uh, the policy of asking sexual orientation and gender identity questions. And it was simple as me going back to the staff that I had who were running our research department within the Administration for Community Living and asking them for a plan. It's like, how can we start to get this information about Older Americans Act uh, participants? It's really their recommendation that we begin by adding sexual orientation questions and did that through the mechanism of getting uh, approval from the Office of Management and Budget uh, in order to comply with the Paperwork Reduction Act. So let, let's clarify something uh, about, you know, terminology. Because you said you were interested in uh, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity question, and then finally the question was on sexual orientation. So what's the difference? So sexual orientation is how someone uh, expresses their own sexuality with regard to whether or not they're heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual. It is, sometimes we call it a shorthand, it's like, who do you love? Gender identity is different. It's your self-identification. Does an individual identify themselves as male or female or something other than that that we usually refer to as transgender? Uh, so we were interested in the sexual orientation question. I was more I was interested in both, but we had better research at that point on sexual orientation questions and chose to implement that one first. It was foreseeable that the, the sample size would... Uh not be very large, right? Yes, that wasn't a surprise. And so how did you think uh, you were going to deal with this issue after three years, for example? Of the sample size particularly? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, that issue had not come to me for resolution because I left at the end of July uh, 2016. I understand with a small sample size from a research perspective, one of the options is to oversample. Uh, that had not come up, and we just hadn't gotten to that point. We had been discussing something different, and I think my attention would have gone in that other direction. This particular survey is a look-behind survey. After we've provided Meals on Wheels or other in-home services, after those have been delivered, we have an evaluation team who calls the participant to ask them, more about themselves, their satisfaction. So it's really much after the fact. The conversation that I'd been having was not about sample size, was whether or not we should begin to ask this question 
at the point an older person receives the services in the first place. The stakeholders that we worked with had asked us to consider, should we gather this information at a congregate meal site or when someone comes home uh, to provide in-home assistance? Uh, that's complicated for multiple reasons, but I think that is the question I probably would have entertained before I revisited the issue of sample size. And in the, in the UK, they actually pooled data across uh, several uh, uh, surveys, or in the case of, of the uh, National Survey of Older American Act, uh, uh, participants, uh, they could be pooling over several years. To, uh, would you consider that too? As another option to deal with sample size, yes. And I think, I think the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, has done that in other, in other um, evaluation data sets uh, to get a better aggregate sense of what's happening with uh, LGBT individuals. Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, Kathy, last week uh, the ACL decided to keep the sexual orientation question, and they have received the comments from 89 organizations and 14,000 individuals. So my question to you is, since you know well the system, can we consider that this issue is over, or can there be more hurdles ahead? You know, I think the issues with regard to both sexual orientation, gender identity, are complicated issues. I, w I was surprised that we revisited it, so I, I won't ever consider that it's just settled. I think the, this particular piece, as you said, ACL added the questions back in, but there's a second conversation that I wanted to kind of amplify a little bit. Should we be asking these questions at the time someone receives services? Um, when I was at the Department of Health and Human Services, we had both stakeholders and grantees start to really lobby us, kind of advocate that we should add, add, ask these questions at a different time. And that's, that's a complicated question. There's, first of all, if you ask that when someone's getting a, a meal, you have to figure out if there's even a, a technology infrastructure to collect the information. You have to figure out, well, what questions should we ask on the front end? But then really, is it appropriate? Should we be asking these questions? The Older Americans Act is available for all Americans, regardless of any, any particular demographic. Uh, it's supposed to be targeted to people with greatest economic, greatest social need. And I think the most robust policy conversation is not about the look-behind survey. I think it was good that they returned to those questions, but what kind of information should we get from people when they come to see us for service? And I think there's kind of mixed opinion about that. I certainly was not settled in my approach on what I would do if we ever got to that point. Thank you, Kathy. That was extremely interesting, and it opens, you know, the, the, the future for more discussions on that. And uh, Appreciate very much your time. Sure, and, thank you. Uh, thank you for your interest. Remember your health. Let's now call Randall Sell, who is now with the Department of Community Health and Prevention at the Dorn Sife School of Public Health in Philadelphia. Hi, Randy. Hi, how are you doing? Tell me, Randy, you've been in this uh, activity for a very long time. When did you first see survey data 
about the LGBT community in the United States? Well, I mean, it, it depends what you mean by survey data. I think there's, there's been survey data for a long time. You know, I'm also a part-time historian, and, you know, Magnus Hirschfeld in 1903 and 1904 surveyed steel workers in, uh, in Germany. So people have been constructing samples and uh, looking at LGBT people for a long time. The problem really has been constructing samples that were representative, that you could generalize from, that, right. you, could, that you could say something. Yeah. So when did you first see such a data? You know, you started seeing the first surveys that you could start saying stuff with some confidence about uh, LGB people back in the 1990s. Uh, for example, the youth risk behavior surveys, a few, Massachusetts was the first, started uh, in their samples asking questions that could assess sexual orientation. The kids that identified as lesbian, gay, or bisexual were at greater risk for virtually everything in the survey. And including the girls that identified as lesbian or bisexual were more likely to get pregnant, which, you know, pregnancy is, is, is a significant concern for morbidity and mortality, uh, mm -hmm. in, in young girls. And we hadn't even anticipated that. There was, there was beliefs in the community that, that, uh, women, lesbian, bisexual women were getting pregnant. The best way to get people to stop talking to you or asking about whether you're uh, a lesbian or bisexual is to get pregnant. And that was something you would hear in the community and you would see all these women w with children, yeah. um, lesbian, bisexual women with children. And uh, you then actually saw it in the data. So you went from this belief or, you know, I always term these things beliefs or myths. Mm -hmm. um, some, of them, some of them were myths, some of them were beliefs that we had nothing to back up the data on. And here in one survey in one state in Massachusetts, and then we could argue using that data, okay, your survey, your survey is talking about uh, pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So you should, you should assess sexual orientation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good example. But, but there are also issues, uh, Randy, about uh, the sample size because uh, the... LGBT community is maybe not that large and it's concentrated in specific uh, regions or areas or cities. Uh, aren't there uh, methodological issues related to that too? Right. I mean, that's, that's the, probably the biggest concern. And I, you know, I was just looking at, you know, Gallup does surveys and they're continually doing surveys of different topics but they ask sexual orientation in virtually all of them, and they pull their data. Last year, they surveyed, uh, I think, over 300,000 people and found about, well, found 4.1% last year identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. But that was pulling data. Uh, and so you need to think about pulling data from one year to the next. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's... You know, and that's not difficult to do. You sometimes have to make some statistical corrections. You know, every concern can be overcome. It's just a matter of do we want to collect this data? Remember your health. Ooh, remember your health.
I'm going to ask now Gary Gates. So, Gary, you were, you're now retired, but you were with the Williams Institute at UCLA. Can you briefly say what this institute is? The Williams Institute is a research center that studies sexual orientation and gender identity law and policy issues. Okay. And so you have uh, looked at the evolution of the demographic of uh, LGBT population, right, over those... That's correct. Yeah. And so what do you see as the main transformation that is occurring now? Uh, the main things right now are, well, one, it's just growing, at least in terms of people identifying as LGBT. It's getting noticeably larger with, um, when you look within individual surveys, almost all surveys over the last, you know, four or five years see an increase in people willing to identify as LGBT. And then demographically. So just, uh, Gary, what, what is the proportion of the population uh, answers? In most surveys, it ranges from about four to five percent now, and that's up from if you go about five or more years ago, it was more in the two to three percent range. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's just been kind of a steady increase over the last five years. And you, your uh, uh, opinion on this is that uh, are we just getting the right number? Are we underestimating? Are we over? Estimating what? Well, what do I you mean, think? I think the the right number is a hard thing to think about in terms of whether there are different ways in which we can measure sexual orientation, and one or the other way is not the right one. So we can measure it through people's willingness to identify. We can measure it through sexual behavior or sexual attraction. Um, and then there's different ways in which we would maybe think about measuring gender identity as well. So I don't think one or the other of those ways is quote, right. Um, I think it depends on what you're studying and, and what you're interested in. In terms of identity, the surveys are relatively consistent in the U.S. at least. Um, they're all in that kind of, if you go across all surveys, it's about a three to five percent range. Um, but again, in all of those surveys, um, that kind of baseline has been increasing over time. I see. And what are the, those demographic changes you were starting the to describe? The basic demographic shifts, um, the population is getting younger. So when we look at these shifts of uh, increases, almost all of those increases are due to more willingness of younger people to self-identify as LGBT. The population is also getting more female and we're also, it's getting substantially more um, comprised of racial and ethnic minorities. So um, LGBT identity in most racial and ethnic minorities now is higher than it is among white people. Um, part of that is simply because racial and ethnic minorities are younger than white people in the United States. And as I said, um, there's been big changes and there are big differences between the willingness of young people to identify as LGBT versus their older counterparts. I see. And so uh, in this dossier that we're having in this issue, we're talking about these older uh, Americans and in particular older LGBT people. So how would you describe the, the characteristics of older LGBT people in their 60s today? So, you know, older LGBT people are, uh, relative to the whole LGBT population, they are a, a bit more male. Um, they are, there's fewer racial and ethnic minorities. 
Um, but I think some of the difficulties with um, older LGBT people is that there's a, a, a some evidence that um, when people get older, they sometimes have to go back in the closet because senior service systems are just not designed to manage sexual orientation and gender identity issues. And sometimes the easiest solution for people to get help is um, to avoid their sexual orientation and gender identity again. And, and it's, it's challenging because in one of the surveys I looked at, um, among the kind of baby boomer generation, the percent who identify as LGBT actually ticked slightly down over the last five years. And some of that may be due to uh, people deciding to be less um, public. But why is it so? Why, why would it be that uh, revealing their sexual orientation would have bad consequences for them? They may feel they'll be discriminated against. They may feel that they'll have a more difficult time um, getting, say, senior housing or living in, in, a, in a community um, with uh, other seniors. Um, there's, there's just a lot of evidence that the senior services system really hasn't uh, sort of figured out how to manage uh, sexual orientation and gender identity issues. And you would say this is throughout the country or it's in specific oh, states? I'm sure like most things related to sexual orientation and gender identity, it's different in different parts of the country. I'm sure it's a little easier in places that have higher levels of acceptance and understanding. But it, it does appear that even in some of our, you know, some of the studies that have been done have been in urban settings like New York, um, that but you still see evidence of people feeling as they get older that the systems are, are just not as um, open to them. Yeah. And uh, just a last question, um, Gary, if we count uh, 30 years ago, uh, those people who are 60 today, they were 30, and, and this was 1980, that was the beginning of the AIDS, uh, HIV right. epidemic. So can, can we say that... Uh, Older LGBT people today are survivors of this uh, uh, tragedy. Certainly, many are, and and you know it's a little difficult to to totally track what the 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 demographic um, implications were of HIV, in part because data in that era is so limited, so it's hard to really look at at trend data around sexual orientation. Um, but yes, I mean, today's baby boomer generation are the group. One of the reasons they're of great interest in terms of being studied is that they are the group that was kind of the first big generation to be out after Stonewall. And then, as you point out, they um, dealt with the HIV crisis and um, have survived that and have histories that are very unique, um, even within the LGBT community. And probably then cope with life's stresses and and challenges associated with their sexual orientation and gender identity perhaps differently than other lgbt people do because of the some of the difficult history yeah that's right that's a very good point thank you gary thank you very much for your time much appreciated. you're very welcome thank you take care bye-bye bye-bye remember your health 
Let's call now Joanna Semlian, who is a researcher with the Norwich Medical School at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, United Kingdom. Joanna? Hello, Alfredo. How are you doing? I'm very well. Nice to speak with you. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Nice to speak. Tell me, Joanna, just one uh, thing that um, surprised me, you know, in the U.S., uh, we use this uh, acronym LGBT or LGBTQ, yes. and I see that in your paper you you use LGBO. Is yes. this standard in the UK? No, not at all. What this re this what this reflects is the standard question that is asked in our surveys that was agreed in uh, uh, 2009 asks: Are you a straight or heterosexual? B lesbian, gay, C, bisexual, and then the fourth option that's asked is other, as well as don't know and mm -hmm. refuse to answer. And as researchers, we decided to analyze the um, responses to um, that also agreed other, because, of course, one of the options is to choose heterosexual, isn't it? And, of course, if people are not choosing heterosexual and they're not choosing lesbian, gay or bisexual, we think that that is still a meaningful category. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it, but it is not in any way... Um, standard uh, parlance do you know what I mean it's not it's not a, a, a standard term it is much more a, an epidemiological a, a, you know choice a statistical yeah. choice yeah? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah yeah so obviously that trans people may well be choosing O yeah um, because of course they want to indicate their identity in some way and of course it could also be a group of people who are choosing um Queer. To not quite to choosing not to choose lesbian, gay, and bisexual. So they could be queer identified or any, any sort of non-binary, and that at the moment is is a, is a term that's covered by the word other. And people sometimes in some surveys or some formats are allowed to say their own choice of phrase. So it says other, please specify. But of course, in these surveys, it is just a tick box exercise. Yeah. I understand. So tell me, John, I, uh, you, um, according to the number you give, there would be about 2.8% people responding to non-heterosexual uh, category. Uh, do you think this is a, uh, an accurate estimate of the population in the UK that is LGBO? I, I don't. I think that um, it is uh, an estimate of the people who were happy to select one of those categories and or answer that question in the format in which it might have been asked, which, of course, does range sometimes from a telephone interview or maybe pointing to a card by an interviewer on a face-to-face -face basis. Mm -hmm. I think it reflects the number of people that are happy to disclose to an interviewer or reveal um, to a survey in a world where perhaps they don't confidently feel like disclosing, um, you know, in a lot of other um, walks of life. So mm -hmm. I, I think it is an underestimate. Even if it's an underestimate, 3% is relatively a, a small proportion of the whole population. So do you have problems of sample sizes as they seem to have in the U.S.? 
Yes, indeed. So that gives us some um, very small um, sample sizes for comparing to the uh, reference group in our in our surveys, um, and I think that is why people have commonly pooled um, that that group into one group and treated it, as I said, as a non-heterosexual compared to a and compared to the reference group of heterosexual. Um, but that makes a large assumption, doesn't it, about the fact that um, everybody who is LGB or O is somehow mm -hmm. got some homogenous shared um, identity, um, which, of course, that's clearly not going to be the case. But I think in the UK you had uh, some creative uh, solution to actually uh, pull data across surveys, don't you? Mm, indeed. So um, what we decided to do was actually take... Um, the uh, surveys, because surveys have been starting to ask this question um, within um, the, in some of the national health surveys since around 2008, but that's not every year. So on the occasions where the uh, health outcomes that we're interested in, so we have a, a variables that occur across a series of surveys, uh, either the same survey across different year points or across a range of different surveys, of which there are around four, then what we did was we decided to pool the uh, samples into one group, which allowed us, which gave us much greater numbers of people, actual physical numbers of people that we could then use as a group to compare to the um, heterosexual reference group, which is usually, of course, as we know, a much, much greater number of people if it's around 97% of, uh, of the original sample. But so there had been some consultation before in order to have... Uh questions that you could pull together or the questions were different across surveys? No, well what it is is there was a consultation where a certain question was agreed on um, which is which gives us those four question op uh, those four um, choice answers. One last question uh, Joanna you know uh, there have been um, attempts to remove the sexual orientation question from a national survey of uh, older Americans. Uh, what's your reaction? Well, I, I, I find it a very worrying um, move because I think if we were in a position where we had no um, sexual orientation uh, health disparities, if people of uh, all sexual orientations had equal health, then it would be uh, a question or a, an area of study that we would no, leave, no, no longer need to look into. But of course, it's not only is it uh, an area where we have ongoing and persistent health disparities, um, those health disparities are visible across all ages. So there's no need to assume that uh, an older group of uh, LGB people may in some way no, no longer have um, poorer health or poorer access to health. Not only that, we also don't have a full picture really and fully understand all the health um, disparities experienced by this group. So to me, there doesn't seem any reason for that question to be removed. Instead, I would be hoping that, um, especially you know, in the UK, and I'm sure therefore it's the same within the US, that we should be actually mandating asking around sexual orientation and indeed gender identity in all health surveys. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. Thank you very much, Joanna. This was very interesting. Thank you for your time and bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Finally, let's talk with Laura Durso who is the Vice President of the LGBT Research and Communication Project at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C.
Hello. Good morning. Good hey, morning. Hey. Laura, tell me, uh, why do you think this is happening now? Uh, the question of the eraser of, of this question on sexual orientation by the ACL. Yeah, I think that it's, it's, it's too much of a coincidence to me that it is uh, timed at the start of a new administration and, and this administration in particular with the Trump administration. We have fought for a number of years to increase the number of federal surveys and administrative data sets that have asked questions about sexual orientation and gender identity. And I would be the first to admit that it's slow going um, and and the work, you know, has struggled at times. Um, but it over the past, uh, you know, probably two or three years, there's really been an acceleration uh, of um, interest in looking at federal data collection to identify LGBT populations. And so I think that's why it was particularly jarring that we saw a change in administration to one that we know mm -hmm. is uh, standing against LGBT equality. Uh, and then that one of the first things that would happen is that there would be this attempt to, um, you know, shut down data collection where in one of the few places that it's happening. And then when we have people coming in who really don't understand the need for this kind of information, uh, and who might be outright hostile, let's be, uh, clear as well. Um, that this is probably why it's happening right now. And I think that it's important that folks realize that, um, you know, the data collection is really tied to the um, distribution of funds and resources, you know, the, something like the American Community Survey, which the federal government administers, um, that ensures allocation of millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and so this isn't really a, just a scientific exercise to be able to uh, identify LGBTQ populations and learn about them. But there's, you know, there are resources that the federal government can bring to bear to help communities. And if we don't know where to put the money, certainly LGBT communities may not see a cent of it. I think you touch, uh, you know, the, the most important uh, point of the question here. And uh, listen, Laura, it seems, uh, according to what the ACL has uh, published last week, that they will uh, reintroduce uh, the question on sexual orientation. So that, that seems to have been a, a major success of all uh, uh, the interventions that have been done uh, to support this question. What would be, in this case, the, the next steps, do you, in your view, you know, to guarantee that this happens and actually uh, also leads to uh, uh, data and uh, public health consequences? Sure. Um, you know, we were thrilled to see that the Administration for Community Living decided to retain the question. Uh, it actually improved the question, in my opinion, in the way that it's asking about sexual orientation. It changed it so that there is now no way to identify yourself as transgender if you wish to on the, um, on the survey. And so certainly there's uh, you know, the next step really is to try and push for that inclusion of gender identity. I think the, you know, the, the response from the public and from, um, experts was clear that this was something that needed to be asked about. And I think the agency was responsive to that. And now we have to just build on that success, much like we had in, in past years. But I think it's important in the current climate and the, the, that at this moment in time, we actually talk about the fact that that was a success 
for not just the LGBT movement, really, but for science and sort of the interaction between the public and government, because government, you know, the government in this case put out a proposal that the public did not like. And, and there are mechanisms in place for the public and for experts to weigh in and to provide evidence for why they should reverse course. And this is government at its best when it, it put out a proposal. It received, we, uh, I think the count is around just over 14,000 comments saying uh, that they should retain the question, most of them saying they should retain the question, and they responded. They they addressed people's comments uh, and responded in kind and looked at the evidence. Uh, and so I think that's an important next step, too, is to really talk about how it's, it's very, very important for all of us to be monitoring uh, and the government and what it's doing and how it's functioning and recognize that we do have the power to influence how that works. Uh, and we need to be holding the government accountable. Uh, and I think that's particularly true now when um, there are people in power who have articulated a desire to really chip away at how government works. Uh, and, you know, and so it's up to all of us really to remain vigilant and to know that we have the ability to uh, weigh in, uh, to bring evidence to bear, to bring stories and to tell how important this information is for our communities. Uh, and this was a great example of when the government listened uh, and, and we saw a success at the end of the day. Okay. Great conclusion. Thank you very much, Laura. It was oh, great it's my talking pleasure. to you and uh, thanks I'm for just, your time. It's, it's a real honor, sir. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do. The conclusion of this dossier is that there are no scientific or ethical justifications for the decision to erase the sexual orientation question from any U.S. survey. It was a misstep that we know now will be corrected. This is an extremely important consequence of a national reaction against an injustice on the making. Thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit our brand new website at ajph.org. <laughs>